Sing it with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. The word see shows up nine times in our morning's passage. If you will remember, Jesus just fed 4,000 people by miraculously multiplying bread. The disciples had witnessed it firsthand, him multiply 5,000 loaves to the Jews. It was really more like 15 to 20,000. And then 4,000 to the Gentiles. And then mere minutes later, they find themselves in their own personal bread shortage. Apparently, only one person grabbed one loaf, and instead of turning to the two-time bread multiplier who's in their boat, the disciples begin to be in distress, and Jesus sees this, and he asks them seven questions amounting to, are you really that blind? Having eyes, do you not see? Apparently, you can see Jesus without seeing Jesus. So, loved one, are you blind or can you see? Well, in one respect, Christian, you can see. Ephesians 1 says, On the day of your conversion, the Holy Spirit enlightened the eyes of your heart so that you can see the glory of Jesus Christ. If you believe Jesus should be worshipped in all of life and all of death, then you were blind, but now you see. And yet in another respect, like the disciples, we are all still blind who Jesus is and what he has decisively done for us. We all suffer from various degrees of spiritual blindness causing us to have, listen, demonic distortions of Jesus Christ. And so in today's passage, Jesus wants to deal with those demonic distortions and show us how he gives spiritual sight to the still spiritually blind. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Now, I haven't been ringing this bell enough lately. Vertical Church, we want to be a church that brings our real Bibles to church on Sunday morning. Going to church without a Bible should feel like going snowboarding without your snowboard, or going on a walk without your feet, or going parasailing without a chute. It is the thing the Holy Spirit uses to ground us and move us and lift us up. And so I want all of us to have a Bible that you love the way it feels and you love the way it smells. A Bible that you can mark up and make it fall apart. As Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And I want us to think beyond ourselves with our Bible. Personally, just take this for consideration. I have a Bible designated for someone every two to three years. And um, if you are hoping to get married one day, just, just write love letters in the margins to your future spouse. 
if you have kids, take a Bible every two, three, five years and say, okay, this is going to be Haddon's Bible. And every time there's a verse that's just particularly meaningful, I'm going to just say, okay, praying this verse over you, bud, sign dad, date, grandkids, right? Let, let's, let's have a Bible you love, a Bible with a purpose, and, and bring that baby to church. So we're all clear, guys, vertical church is standing on this. Vertical church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. So no shame if you're on your phone today, okay? No shame. But next week, bring your real Bible. And if you don't have one that you love, if you don't have one that you love the way it smells and the way, come talk to me, we'll, we'll get you hooked up, okay? So open up your Bible or your phone to Mark chapter 8. And we are just continuing to marinate in the gospel of Mark. And almost every Markan scholar believes that the book of Mark is broken up into two main sections. The section we've been in for the last several months are chapters 1 through 8. And the main point is the king is here and his name is Jesus. And the second section is chapters 9 through 16 in which the main point is but he's not the king we were expecting. And almost every scholar divides the book that way with the fulcrum point, the the holy hinge being our passage this morning. This is the day everything changes in the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark 8, beginning in verse 22. When you're there, say nice and loud, there. That was not loud. Okay, find it. Okay, now say nice and loud, there. Let's dig in, guys. Verse 22, this here is the word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. This text is exceptional because it's the only time in the Bible where we see an incremental healing. Jesus had to touch him twice, and the question saints have been asking for 2,000 years is why? Why didn't Jesus heal him fully with one touch like he did everyone else? I mean, did he miss? Can you even miss a healing? Was it a especially stubborn blindness? Remember the context. Jesus just reprimanded his disciples for being blind to who he is. You see, this miracle is not a magic trick. It's a parable. Jesus gives physical sight to a blind man to point to or to show the disciples how he gives spiritual sight to all those who follow him. So far from this man's blindness being so strong that Jesus needed uh, to take two swings at it, Jesus is so strong that he's just playing with it. He says, I'm going to heal you and use you for an object lesson to show my people how I give spiritual sight. This is sovereign supremacy. Jesus says, I'm going to give physical sight to this blind man. And while I'm at it, I'm going to be showing my disciples how I give spiritual sight 
to my still blind people. So let's see it. Verse 23. See what Jesus does to the man who's physically blind. It says, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Okay, now look down to verse 22 to see what Jesus does with the men who are spiritually blind. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Just as Jesus took the blind man out of the village to get alone, Jesus now takes the disciples out of Israel to get alone. Point one, Jesus gives spiritual sight by taking us aside privately. He walks his disciples 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city was carved into the side of Mount Hermon, and it was basically a pagan strip mall for all the gods. It was just one temple after the next, each dedicated to a different god. And the newest temple there was to the newest god, Caesar. Herod the Great had carved a temple out of marble to Caesar and named that place Caesarea after Caesar and Philippi after his son Philip, who was governor of that region. And so just catch this. The general consensus is Caesar is God. So where does Jesus go on the day to explicitly reveal his supremacy? Caesarea Philippi. Guys, this is calculated swagger. Jesus takes his disciples to the pagan strip mall to say, I'm not a God, I'm the God. I'm not a king, I'm the king. I'm the reality, and all these other jokers are the parody. This is messianic moxie, but it's also incredibly sweet. In the same way Jesus took the deaf man aside in chapter 7 to open his ears, Jesus takes both the blind man and the blind disciples aside to open their eyes in private. So for us, the invitation for every still blind disciple, which is all of us, is to daily give you spiritual sight through his word. Romans 10, 17, if you wonder, why are you guys so fired up about the word? Romans 10, 17 is one reason. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. So guys, we lack sight because we lack scripture. Okay, let me say it again. We lack sight because we lack scripture. We don't see Jesus clearly. We can't see him. We can't see what he's doing in our lives because we're not feeding our spiritual sight with scripture. Faith or sight comes through hearing the word of God. So you want more faith? You got to get more word. You, you want more sight? Then get more scripture. Church family, we are all sick with spiritual blindness, and Jesus, the good physician, is daily inviting us into clearer, sharper sight through his word. And if we would just allow him to take our, our hands and lead us into silence and solitude, we will see more. We will, we will be given more faith. So Jesus gives spiritual sight by taking us aside privately, but but look deeper. This is, this is much deeper. Look at verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, doubtless, Jesus could have healed this man by just saying the word. 
He had done that several times before. Why spit on his eyes and lay hands on him? Again, we remember back to chapter 7 when Jesus heals the deaf man by sticking his fingers in his ears. Just as he stuck his fingers into the deaf man's ears back in chapter 7, Jesus is once again saying, I'm going to heal you, but not in some standoffish, detached way. I'm going to get personal, really personal. Because you are blind, you aren't able to see it. So I want you to be able to feel it. You guys, Jesus uses his saliva and his hands, not for the onlooker's sake. Remember, they're in private. He does it for the blind man's sake. He's communicating a type of braille. Jesus says, I'm not concerned about what anyone else thinks as if they see this. Do you feel this? And he puts his saliva on his eyes and he touches him. And then he says, now do you see anything? Now if that miracle is a parable showing us how Jesus gives his disciples spiritual sight, then we should see that in the disciples too, right? Look down at verse 27. 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Do you see the connection? Jesus says to the blind man in verse 23, do you see anything? And he says to the blind disciples in verse 29, yeah, but, but who do you say that I am? Apparently, Jesus gives spiritual sight by touching us personally. Who are the disciples except individual men that Jesus had encountered personally and called individually? So Jesus asked them two questions. Who do people say that I am? You guys, Jesus knows everyone has to do something with him. Love him or hate him, Jesus is the access of human history. I mean, we break up the whole history of the world into two periods, before him and after him. Jesus is the most influential person to ever live, and it's not even close. His teachings have shaped more cultures and continents. His followers have spread further and have had more influence than any other movement ever known to man. Everyone has to do something with Jesus, and he knows that, and so he says, what are people saying about me? And they respond, see it again in verse 28. John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Some people like Herod we saw earlier in Mark thought Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. Others thought that he was Elijah because Malachi 3 and 4, the latest book the Jews would have had at this point, said there would be an Elijah-like messenger who would come right before the coming of the Lord. Others said, you know, it's been 400 years since we had a prophet in Israel. Finally, God has sent another prophet. His name is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even acknowledge these answers. He just presses in. But who do you say that I am? You guys, this is the most important question that could ever be asked. How you answer it will determine how you live this life and the life to come. Who do you say 
Jesus is? And I, I do want to note, it's important for us to know the answer to that question. It's important for us to know what others say about Jesus. It's important for us to say with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's important for us to know, but Jesus wants to give you more sight than mere theologically precise confession. He wants to touch each of us individually. Last week at MC, we went around and asked kind of a corny question, but what's your favorite thing about Jesus? And the answers were just beautifully personal and profound. Someone said, he's my closest friend. He is so, 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 so patient. Someone said, he's our groom. You see, spiritual sight comes when we move from popular opinion to personal conviction. Spiritual maturity comes when we get alone with the Lord every day and like the blind man, allow the Lord to touch us in such a way that we... We don't just know it, we feel it. It's like sign language to the deaf man or braille to the blind man. And you guys, that only comes through suffering. Newsflash. The man felt Jesus through, not despite his suffering, in his suffering. It's through suffering that we begin to feel Jesus' glory. It wasn't until my one-year-old was lying unconscious while we waited for paramedics did I feel that promised peace that surpasses all understanding. It wasn't until my mom unexpectedly passed away did I feel the hope for resurrection. It wasn't until I sinned a hundred thousand times did I feel Feel the thinness of my own righteousness. Not until I sinned a lot did I feel the utter desperation and dependency upon Christ alone. How, who do you say Jesus is? Don't just give the party line. Who have you found him to be, especially in times of suffering? Jesus gives spiritual sight by working in personal ways that move us from popular opinion to personal conviction. Now look at what Jesus does for the physically blind man up in verse 28. And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Okay, what does that tell us about the blind man? I see people, but they look like trees walking. It tells us that he wasn't born blind, right? Apparently, he knows what trees look like. Christian, don't miss things like that. When it comes to the Bible, the wisest are those who read the slowest. Pick up things like that. Apparently, this guy had become blind because he knows what both people look like and trees 
So Jesus gives this man some sight, but not full sight. He can see people, but they look like trees walking. So if this is in fact a parable about how Jesus gives us spiritual sight, then again, we should see the same thing now with the spiritually blind disciples. Look down at verse 29. Verse 29. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means the Messiah or the anointed one. And this right here is the holy hinge of the entire gospel of Mark. For the first time, someone, listen, Peter, out of all people, rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And how does Jesus respond? Well, Matthew gives us a little more detail that apparently Peter was too humble to relay onto Mark. Matthew 16, 17 says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Note that spiritual sight only comes from God. It is an act of grace alone. But Peter got it right, right? This seems like full sight to me. Jesus is the Christ. Peter said he is the Christ. And yet if we keep reading, we'll see that Peter sees the Christ, but he doesn't see the Christ. He sees Jesus, but he looks like a tree walking. His vision is foggy and distorted. Look at verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man... Stop right there. That's Jesus' favorite title that he used for himself. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And if you were a first century Jew, you'd know exactly what he's referring to. Son of Man comes from Daniel 7.13, which reads... I saw into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says explicitly in verse 31, that's me, y'all. I have been given all glory and dominion. I, all peoples and nations and languages, yeah, they're going to serve me. I am the sovereign, supreme king and my kingdom will never pass away. It'll never be destroyed. And at this point, the disciples are like, yeah, let's go, man. Let's run. Because the Jews thought that the Messiah would be a warrior king who would start a war with Rome, crush the empire, annihilate all pagans, and usher in a golden age of Israeli global domination. So Peter's like, all right, son of man. Yeah, I hear you. Let's go. You are the Christ. Now look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must, what does that say? suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Guys, everything just changed. For the first time ever, Jesus says how he will bring about his everlasting kingdom, not by crushing Rome, but by getting crushed by Rome. For the first time ever, Jesus 
reveals that the Son of Man of Daniel 7 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 are the same person, him. Verse 32, he didn't say it in parables. See it. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. So just like how Jesus took the blind man aside and the disciples aside, now Peter thinks he can take Jesus aside. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is Peter's blindness. Apparently, when Peter saw Jesus as the Christ, he did see him as a tree walking. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> now, if we're going to make a list of the top three things we don't want to hear out of Jesus' mouth, that's got to make the list, right? Get behind me, Satan. Now, I understand why Jesus says, get behind me. Behind me is the proper place of a disciple. Jesus says, Peter, you're out of line. You're not my leader. You're my follower. Get back behind me. But why call him Satan? I mean, that's kind of harsh. Well, do you remember how Satan tempted Jesus back in chapter 1? Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness and said, you can have all the kingdoms of the world, and I'll offer you a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow before me, and you can have it all. And now Peter is essentially saying the same thing. You are the Christ, and you can have it all, but you don't have to die. Like Satan, Peter is tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. And Jesus says, verse 33, Peter you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter, my impending death and resurrection are of God. Man couldn't have thought this up. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. You're right in saying that I'm the Christ. You're right in assuming that I will ascend to the throne and fight for my people and defeat your enemy, but you're still blind to which throne, which people, and which enemy. Jesus gives spiritual sight, point three, by revealing himself incrementally. In the same way the blind man sees people, but they're foggy and distorted, when Jesus gives his disciples spiritual sight, our perception is foggy and distorted. Listen, satanically so. So how did Peter end up with a get-behind-me-Satan distortion? How did he get behind me with a demonic distortion of Jesus? Well, I think there's at least three things we can point out. Demonic distortions come from, if you're taking notes, choosing certain passages over others. Peter knew the scriptures of the Son of Man, clearly, but he didn't think about Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or the dozens of passages that prophesy the cross. And it's not just Peter, that's all of us, isn't it? We all grab hold of passages that resonate particularly with us due to the way we're wired or our family of origin or our theological leanings or surprise. And when we do that, surprise, surprise, we end up with a Jesus that looks a lot like us, a little smarter, more loving, 
but a lot like ourselves. Listen, if your categories for Jesus aren't regularly being challenged, you aren't worshiping the real Jesus. You're worshiping a demonic distortion, simply a divine projection of yourself. Secondly, demonic distortions come from the curvature of our own heart. The reality is Peter wanted Jesus to take power because Peter wanted power. He wanted to ride on the curtails of a conquering Christ, not a crucified one. Peter wanted the Christ to rise to power so that Peter could be the second in command. How do we know this? Because in the next chapter, the disciples are arguing over who will be the greatest in Jesus' coming kingdom. Apparently, they all had a hunger in their own hearts to be powerful and prestigious. And so they had vested interest in viewing Jesus in a specific ways. And, and loved one, we do this too, don't we? If you love money, you will see a Jesus who has no problem with the American dream and says, no, no, you can serve both God and money. If you love your sin, you will see a Jesus who extends grace upon grace and mercy on top of mercy, but never calls you to cut off your hand or tear out your eye in the radical removal of whatever is causing you to sin. If you love comfort, you will see a Jesus who is all about rest. And if you love work and achievement, you will see Jesus who just really exists to bless your work and help you reach your goals. All disciples of Jesus take what is already in our hearts and project that onto Jesus. And while many of those projections are partially true, they are also partially and demonically distorted. Number three, demonic distortions come from cultural worldview. Peter was born into a worldview that said the Messiah was coming to forcefully take power and usher in Jewish domination. So when he sees Jesus, he says, okay, you're not going to die, you're going to dominate. And we do this also. The average American worldview is one of consumerism and individualism. So most American Christians have fashioned a vision of Jesus who is one part therapist, one part life coach, and at least two parts fan club. This bobblehead Jesus Jr. exists for us. He's just here to encourage my heart and heal my body and secure my financial future and make my day easier and fulfill all my dreams. Loved ones, these are demonic distortions. These blaspheme the very glory and person of the Son of God. So we need to recognize our blindness. We should be very suspicious of our spiritual sight that is not explicitly tagged to a verse. And we should seek to see him through the entire counsel of the word of God. The best way to do this the best way to battle demonic distortions is to read your Bible cover to cover every single year until you die. Only through repeated, spirit-filled, sustained exposure to the real Jesus from Genesis to Revelation will we begin to actually see him as he really is. So loved ones, let's just let him create our categories. Let's let him define the terms. He is God after all. And as we do so, he will incrementally or progressively reveal himself to us. At the best, though, even if you spend the next 80 years swimming in the scriptures, 
because you are human and you have indwelling sin, we will all still be partially spiritually blind. What we really need is verse 25. See it in verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. For the man who was physically blind, only after Jesus touched him a second time were his eyes fully opened, his sight completely restored, and he saw everything clearly. When will that happen for those of us who are spiritually blind? Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Catch this when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, with the blind man, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, verse 25. And with us, blind disciples, the Son of Man is coming again, this time not in a humble estate that can be spiritually confused, but in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus gives spiritual sight by, point four, returning in glory. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We all suffer from various degrees of spiritual blindness. You guys, that's why we're so prone to discouragement. It's why there's such a low governor on our joy. It's why our our life feels so tempered all the time. Our spiritual blindness is the chief cause for all our headaches and heartaches in this life. And yet, but in a few days, Jesus will lay his hands on your eyes again. He will open them fully. Your sight will be restored, and you will see everything clearly. So guys, let's groan for his return. Let's ache prayers of Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And then let's take heart. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, for we are God's children now, and what we will see has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray.